Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 21, The Bulgar Slayer. Welcome back, everyone. Now, we left off last time with the Byzantine Emperor Basil II slowly tightening the noose around the neck of Samuil and his Bulgarian state. First by taking the northeast, then the southwest, and now by attacking the north at Vidin and bringing the fearsome Hungarians into the fray. Now, the Greek historian John Skylictes is a tough name, a lot of of consonants there, but a Greek historian writing a few decades after the period, who makes up one of the main sources for this uh, era, said of Basil's year of campaigning against Bulgaria that Basil, quote, did not relent, but every year marched into Bulgaria and laid waste and ravaged all before him, end quote. Now, truly, this was something different compared with previous Byzantine campaigns, because Basil wasn't going straight for the kill. The Byzantines have been trapped in sort of a perpetual threat of a two-front war between their eastern and western frontiers for centuries. And what that meant is that they rarely had the luxury to take their time when campaigning against the Bulgarians. There was always kind of a threat that if they take too long campaigning against the Bulgarians, that at any moment the Arabs might kind of rise up and attack them from the east. But Basil had planned this very well. A 10-year truce had been signed between the Byzantines and the Fatimid Caliphate in the year 1000, and Basil planned to make good use of every single one of those years. He knew he could afford to focus each campaign season on tightening that noose a little bit tighter and cutting some wheel off from one more piece of territory. So, the question is, where was Samuel in all of this? How was he responding to Basil's strategy? Now, he knew that with the Byzantines pulling troops from their eastern frontier, that he stood no chance in a pitch battle. And that had been true in the past, and Bulgarian rulers had generally relied on using the terrain and element of surprise to ensure that they had the advantage. Now, Samuel was no different. But those kinds of tactics simply don't always work, as we'll see later in this episode. But in the meantime, essentially Samuel is going to stand back, wait for his time to strike. Okay, so now back to the narrative. We left off last time just at the moment Basil II was at the head of a large army laying siege to the great Danubian fortress of Vidin, while the Bulgarian commander Achtum engaged the Hungarians farther north. Neither ended well for the Bulgarians. Achtum was killed in battle, and Vidin was suffering under a brutal siege. But Samuel did have a plan to help Vidin. He attempted to draw the Byzantines away from their siege by mounting an attack on the important city of Adrianople, modern Edirne in Turkey. Now, Adrianople was very far from Samuel's territory and hadn't felt the least bit threatened up to this point. Add to that the fact that the attack came on the 15th of August, 1003, which was the day of the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin, and, well, the result was a brutal success for Samuel. He took many prisoners and much war loot. But 
it wasn't enough to save Vidin. Within a month or so, the city fell anyways, and the powerful fortress was heavily garrisoned by Basil. Bulgaria was now almost completely cut off from all but its scarce Adriatic ports. The noose was getting tighter. So Vidin fell around October, and although Basil had no hesitation to campaign in the winter, something quite rare for the time, he still decided to head back to Constantinople at this point. But you'll remember, Samuel's only real chance against his army was to surprise it and use the terrain and hit to his advantage. So Basil sought to prevent uh, Basil II and the Byzantine army getting back to Constantinople in one piece, or at least without being significantly harassed. So Basil, to you know, prevent this, instead of heading directly back to the capital, took a longer and more unexpected route, right through the heart of what remained of Samuel's kingdom. It was really a bold move to march through hostile, mountainous territory when, say, hugging the Danube and Black Sea all the way home was a longer but easier and safer option. Even the Byzantine navy could have probably retrieved the emperor, but Basil wouldn't have it. Samuel, for his part, also couldn't allow Basil to march through his territory like this. It, it looks bad, you know. At this point, Samuel's facing, uh, I'm sure, a lot of troubles at home. It doesn't, he doesn't look like a strong leader, and having an enemy army just sort of tramps through his territory at will makes him look powerless. So he rushes back from Adrianople to meet this threat. After Basil had marched through the Morava Valley, destroying everything in his past, the two armies met near Uskub, modern Skopje in Macedonia, on the blank banks of the flooded river Vardar. Now, the deja vu wouldn't end there, because just as it had happened eight years earlier, at the Battle of Spercheos, Samuel's troops believed that there was no way the Byzantines could cross the cold and fast rushing waters. But again, just like eight years earlier, they were deathly wrong. The Byzantines managed to find a place to ford the river and descended upon the Bulgarians without mercy, killing many, retaking all the treasure from Adrianople, and even capturing Samuel's tent. Once again, some Bulgarian success had been quickly reversed through carelessness. However, once again, Samuel did manage to escape. Now, following the quick surrender of Skopje, Basil turned northeast and headed towards Serdica. However, directly in his past was the fortress of Bernik, and its commander, the famous commander Krakra, was kind of manning the fortress, and it was a very famous, fearsome warrior. Now, this is the first and not the last time we're going to hear about Krakra, so you can remember his name. So while we don't have many details about this particular siege of Pernik, we do know that it was well defended, and although even the great walls of Vidin had not been able to resist Basil, Pernik actually did. In fact, the Byzantines sustained heavy losses and were forced to retreat back to Constantinople another way. This gave Samuel a tiny bit of breathing room, which he used to strike out against Thessalonica, just eight years after he had taken it himself. So while Samuel didn't take Thessalonica, he did manage to ambush its governor, John Chaldos, and capture him. So at this moment, you can see the situation that overall, Basil is still kind of, to use the metaphor, tightening the noose. 
Samuel's getting a little victory here, a little victory in there, but he's not able to really capitalize on these victories. He's not getting any victories that he can turn into something, but he's sort of getting enough that he's prolonging things, right? That he's not completely being deprived of the faith of his subjects, that people aren't abandoning him wholeheartedly because he is winning here and there. So in general, relative to Samuel's enormous losses over the past few years, capturing a Byzantine governor, it just wasn't an adequate compensation. It didn't make up for those losses. Now, to make matters worse, it was around this time that Samuel's daughter-in-law and son, or sorry, daughter and son-in-law, handed over Durachium, Duras in Albania, if you'll recall, to the Byzantines. So it's another kind of disaster. It looks very, very bad. I mean, his very own daughter abandoned him and gave the city up to the Byzantines. It's a, a real, maybe not the biggest material defeat. Durachium was not an enormously important port for the Bulgarians, because you'll recall they were never a huge seafaring people, but it really looks bad. It's a huge kind of propaganda victory for the Byzantines. So it's now the year 1005, and Samuel's domains, so recently enormous, extended only a few hundred kilometers in any direction from his capital at Ohrid, plus Dukla and southern Dalmatia, which are a bit farther away. But in any case, his kingdom is greatly diminished. Now, as usual, Stephen Runciman does a fantastic job summing up the events of the previous few years. So I'll quote him at length. Quote, Thus, in four years, Samuel had lost half his empire. From the Iron Gate of the Danube to Thessalonica, all of the east of the Balkan Peninsula was in the emperor's hands, except only for Sofia and Strumica, and a few castles around Pernik and Melnik, in the western slopes of the Rudop. And imperial garrisons were stationed on the borders of Thessaly and along the river Vardar. The campaign had been among the most glorious in the history of Byzantine arms. It had shown that the imperial troops, when they were ably led, were still the finest machine of warfare that the world at that day knew. It had shown that the Bulgarians, for all their courage and ardor, their ruses and their traps were no match for them now. Samuel, like every great Bulgar general, had avoided pitched battles, trusting to his speed and to ambushes and sudden descents. But now, he had to face an adversary that could make forced marches against the wildest enemy country, and yet never now to be caught unguarded in a valley or a mountain pass. An adversary, too, that had rid himself of all distractions, that had determined not to cease from fighting till Bulgaria should be no more. End quote. To summarize, things were looking bleak. Now, at this moment, Historians differ on what happened from the years 1005 to 1009. Most take the words of that Byzantine writer, John Skylitzes, at face value and assume that Basil continued campaigning against the Bulgarians every year. However, historian Paul Stevenson believes that, well, there may have been a peace treaty signed in the year 1005, which allowed Samuel to keep his titles and his small bit of land. The reasons Stevenson cites for this are that, well, Basil didn't really have a reason to take more from Samuel at this particular moment. Major Byzantine strongholds had been retaken, trade routes had been restored. What more could Basil want? And Stevenson believes that evidence of this peace treaty may have actually been destroyed later to maintain Samuel's reputation as a warrior who would never relent to the Byzantines. Frankly, though, I'm not really convinced by Stevenson. Stevenson. 
By this point in history, we have enough Byzantine sources that one of them would have likely mentioned any formal treaty. Plus, Basil still had another five years remaining with his peace treaty with the Fatimid Caliphate. Why make peace now, only to resume hostilities just as a potential war in the East would return? Well, in either case, we know essentially nothing about what happened during these years. So the story picks back up only in the year 1009, when the Byzantines defeat the Bulgarians at the Battle of Creta, east of Thessalonica. Now, we don't know much about this battle either. And then the story goes quiet once again uh, until about the year 1014. But then every all the sources, everything comes back with a vengeance and we're back into it. Because frankly, this could only go on for so long, right? The, the annual campaigning against Bulgaria. The writing was on the wall and Bulgaria was, if you can imagine, facing death by a thousand cuts. Samuel had to act or face annihilation. This was particularly true in light of the increasingly shaky loyalty of Samuel's nobles and commanders. He resolved to stop Basil in his tracks, to, to get his supporters back behind him. So after years of observing precisely how Basil and his army moved through the mountains to their objectives, Samuel now had some patterns on which to base his attack. So by the spring of 1014, he thought he'd found the perfect place to make his stand. Perpendicular to the Struma Valley, which runs from where the Greek border is now, north towards Sofia, you've got this other valley. But the Struma Valley, it's this main route north towards uh, from Thessalonica and the wide plains of the Aegean Sea. Now, Samuel knew that Basil would head this way, uh, but quickly turned to the west to follow yet another valley, which is formed by the Sumestinsa River. Now, if you look at the topographical maps I've included on the website, you'll see where the spot where these two valleys meet. It's in the far, far southwest corner of Bulgaria, right where the Bulgarian, Greek, and Macedonian borders all meet today. So this second valley, the one that heads in an east-west direction, leads straight towards Samuel's capital at Ohrid eventually. Along the way, the Byzantine army would have to traverse a pass known as Clydion, named after the nearby village of Kluch, which means key, in Bulgarian. Now there was a castle here, and there were two formidable mountain ranges on either side of the pass. And so the Bulgarian army decided to make it stand. They fortified all the passes in the area with ditches, walls, and towers, and stationed between 15,000 and 20,000 troops there, a very significant force for them at this time. Now when the Byzantines came across the main fortifications, they attacked, assuming that there probably wasn't much behind them, and ended up taking very heavy losses. The Bulgarians were safe behind their wooden wall, and there wasn't much that was going to get them out. But in the meantime, Samuel also attempted to divert attention of the Byzantines by, driving the, by drawing them south towards Thessalonica. Now, it's not very clear to me why he did this, whether it was to, to divide the Byzantines or make them believe the main assault wouldn't come in the mountain passes here or something else, but this was his strategy. So Samuel sent an army led by his commander Nestorica that way. Somewhere near the city of Thessalonica, a force led by its governor and his son met the Bulgarians. Much like the previous battle of Thessalonica, this was the third battle of Thessalonica between the Byzantines and Bulgarians, the commander began by sending an attachment led by his son to attack the Bulgarians. And again, that attachment was surrounded but things evolved very quickly, and the Bulgarians started taking heavy losses and retreating. In the second phase of the battle, 
the troops from Thessalonica managed to overwhelm the Bulgarians and capture many of them. The Storitsa fled and survived. After this, the remaining Byzantine troops headed north to meet the army led by their emperor. So in spite of the successes at Thessalonica, Basil, well, he's still stuck at this point. His attempt to break through the Bulgarian fortifications in the valley had been a complete failure. But as you've gotten, you kind of got to know his personality at this point, you can imagine that he's not just going to give up. So instead, he orders an audacious attack. He tells his commander, Nikephoros Tsiphias, to scale this 2,000 meter, it's about 6,600 feet, mountain called Belasitsa, and attack the Bulgarians from behind. So the Bulgarians sort of formed these, their fortifications in this mountain pass. He says, just climb the mountain. So Samuel had tried to trap Basil and force him into murderous attacks on his heavily defended positions, but instead what happens is the tables are turned. So on July 29th, as the Byzantine soldiers came down from the mountain and attacked the Bulgarian fortifications from the rear, the distracted soldiers could no longer defend the walls against the main Byzantine force in front of them. The Bulgarian soldiers were surrounded and didn't stand a chance. When they received word of the disaster in progress, Samuil and his son Gavriel Radomir rushed to help. However, when they met their retreating forces near the modern village of Mokrevo, their attempts to rally the soldiers in the chaos failed. The Byzantines just kept advancing, and the Tsar and his son themselves were barely able to escape. Now, various Byzantine chroniclers claim that they took somewhere between 15,000 and 8,000 prisoners, though nowadays we expect it's probably in the lower end, but still a very significant number of prisoners, a large number of dead. Now, the Bulgarians regrouped at Prilep, and Samuel had to return to his capital to maintain control as the news of disaster spread. You can imagine there's a real chance of some rebellion, some uprising, if the people get word of the disaster and he's not there to you know, have a strong hand. So he leaves the fight up to his son, who's going to continue battling from Strumitsa. As long as that city can hold, the Vardar Valley can be held. And as long as the Vardar Valley is held, Ohrid, the capital, is still relatively safe and Bulgaria can live on. So this is becoming a bit desperate for Gavriel Radomir. He really needs to hold Strumitsa. So Basil sends a force, led by that same governor of Thessalonica, who had just defeated the Bulgarians, now towards Strumitsa to take it. However, this Byzantine force is ambushed in a gorge, a very narrow one, where they had absolutely no chance of defending themselves, and were slaughtered along with their commander. Legend has it that the commander was killed by a spear thrown by Gavriel Radomir himself, revenge for the recent defeat. Now at this point, Basil was furious. This forced him to abandon his siege of Strumitsa, this uh, sudden defeat, and really wrap up his season of campaigning. Though he still managed to take the fortress of Melnik before he had to retire for the winter. The revenge that Basil undertook in sort of his anger, his retribution for this insult, this defeat, is the one which will give him the name which we've known him by ever since, the Bulgar Slayer. Now, we can't know what possessed him to do this. We only know the results. Those results came on October 13th of the year 1014. Samuel was at Prespa, racked by anxiety about his and Bulgaria's future. The victory at Strumitsa made little difference in the long run. The noose was still tightening and could hardly press any harder into Samuel's neck. 
Just at this moment, a column of men, thousands of columns of men, shambled to the gates of the city. Those Bulgarians who had been captured at Clydon were returning, between eight and 15,000. They had been divided into groups of 100 by Basil and his soldiers. And out of those 100, 99 had been blinded, with the hundredth man of each column left with a single eye with which to lead his brothers back home. If you can imagine, in these eight to 15,000 people, there were between 75 and 40 eyes to lead them back. It was too much for some wheel. It was one thing to see your army slaughtered on the field, but this was something different. The sight of so many of his men broken and mutilated sent him into an apoplectic fit. Two days later, on October 15th, he died of a heart attack. With his brothers or alone, he had ruled Bulgaria for 43 years, 43 difficult years, during which he had fought tooth and nail to rebuild the country after the disastrous losses to the Byzantines and to the Kievan Rus. He was buried at the Basilica of Agios Ancilos on the island in the Lake Prespa. And you can still go there today and see his sarcophagus. I'll hand it over to Runciman again in this moment. Quote, It was the end now. The last red streak of sunset had shone on Bulgaria and the defiles of Kimbaglongos, which their name for Clydion. Now it was twilight, and dim figures hurried to and fro to ward off the inevitable darkness. Nine days after Samuel's death, his son Gabriel Radomir, whom the Greeks called Gabriel Romanus, was proclaimed Tsar. He had probably been away from the army at the time of his father's death, and it took him some time to reach the court. Gabriel Radomir, for all his valor and his magnificent physique, had none of his father's greatness. He could command none of the same awe and respect, and almost at once his throne began to totter. End quote. So, in spite of it all, the war was not over. There was more killing and more conquering to do, and there was no time to waste for the Byzantines. Their army may have in theory retired for the winter. However, emboldened by the death of Samuel, they decided that there was yet more to do before the snows came. Basil traveled as far as Bitola, burned down the new Tsar's palace there, and returned to Thessalonica, capturing more cities along the way. And that's where we'll end today with night falling on the First Bulgarian Empire as its blinded young soldiers shuffle back home in shame as its Tsar is buried. Anger over those horrors of the horrible treatment of these soldiers is rippling through the countryside. Some are vowing resistance, while others see no hope. The question now is, where does this all end? Next time we'll find out, as the first major chapter of Bulgaria's history slowly draws to a close. Now, this episode is produced by Lance Nelson. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Please like us on Facebook and absolutely give us a review on iTunes. Your feedback is always welcome. I always want to know what you guys are thinking, what your opinions, what you want to see more of, hear more of, etc. You can also listen to us directly on SoundCloud, so Give that a try, and as always, feel free to donate with the PayPal button on the website. 
This week, I'd like to give a thanks to the listeners Todor Ivanov, James Bird, and Stefan Krasowski for their generous donations. It really means a lot, you guys. Now, another note, we here at the podcast are currently exploring the possibility of bringing some native advertising on. Now, that would mean me reading between one and two pieces of ad copy in each episode. Now, my hope is to find some advertisers that I really like and who I think you'll like, and hopefully who are maybe somewhat connected to the content of the podcast, though that might be a bit tough. But I want to make ads that are entertaining and that are interesting and that you guys can you know, not have to skip through. So if any of you listeners have any thoughts, if you're totally for it, totally against it, or particularly if you know someone who might be interested in advertising with us, please contact me directly through the Facebook page or through the website. It would really help me get these episodes out more quickly, you know, help me justify devoting more of my time towards doing the research and uh, production and everything, and it would just be a nice favor to me. So if you've got any help to lend, I'd really have to thank you. Also, if you'd like to hear more about Bulgaria today, as usual, please check out Bulgarian Now, uh, created by the aforementioned Lance Nelson. You can hear me give audio tours of Sofia, discuss living here today. Lastly, if you want to hear a bit about the history of Bonsko, check out the Bonsko app, the premium version, where you can hear a special three-part history of the city that I recorded for them. And that's it for today. So, uspech or good luck. <laughs>